Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners, so please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. Hello, fam, and welcome to another episode of Reclaim Me. This week is super exciting because in only one day's time on Thursday, the 13th of April in Coogee in Australia, Sydney, we are going to have our first live podcast and networking event. I'm so excited to bring this to you. I am jumping out of my skin. I have had so many of you message me. I know that a number of you have messaged me and asked if you can attend via live streaming and this will not be able to be live streamed, unfortunately. So we're going to have to organize one in your area if you can't attend. But if you are attending, I'm so excited. And if you're on the fence and you're thinking, I don't know if I can attend, I don't know anybody that's going to be there, then please come. You can let me know straight away and directly if you're coming alone and if you're a bit nervous about that, I will make sure that you feel safe and comfortable. So will every single one of the panelists and other victim survivors and advocates who are going to be there at this event. This event is so much about bringing people together, bringing love together. Everybody who has this commonality as victim survivors, advocates, people who care about this type of work, people who really care about what this event is, which is bringing lived experience into the spotlight. We have the same goals and dreams. And you know what? I've spoken so many times about this, about how many times I've met people. And it feels like we've been friends for such a long time. And I know that that's going to be the case for you. So if there is a part of you that wants to come but is thinking, oh, I don't know if I can come because I'm not going to, I'm going to be alone and I'm going to make friends, please just message me and don't worry about it. I will make sure that you feel safe. I'll make sure that you feel comfortable and you will not be this awkward person standing in the corner alone feeling awkward and feeling like you can't network with people. So this is the last day for you to get tickets. Go get tickets right now. It's via Eventbrite. Go into the Reclaim Me podcast page. You can go on Reclaim Me on Facebook. You can search in on Google Reclaim Me live networking event and it will come up on Eventbrite. So just make sure that you go get your tickets. There's only a limited amount available. So please make sure that you go in and do that. I also want to say a big thank you to Harrison James 
who did all of the design work for this limited edition merch, Horny for Equality, that is going live at the event as well. I am beyond excited and I want to say thank you again to Harry, who is also a panelist and I cannot wait to have him there. So thank you so much. I'm just, honestly, can you tell? Can you can you tell? <laughs> I'm excited. I'm nervous. I'm literally recording this message from Sydney. I'm from Melbourne. I'm usually sitting in my little home, in my little hut in Melbourne, and I'm sitting in this little Airbnb in Sydney recording this. And this all feels a little bit surreal that I'm even able to do this. So again, thank you so much to all of you who continue to support me by rating, reviewing, sharing, listening consistently, every single thing, all of those things that you do make this possible for me to do. So I can't tell you how thankful I am. But I will say that this week is no exception. I know here I am at the top of your podcast episode telling you about all of the things to come to and all of the things to buy. But of course, there is a purpose to it. It is to continue the podcast going. And this week, of course, we have another guest for you. So this week, I am going to welcome Kat. Kat is so incredibly fun and intelligent and smart. And this was a very fun podcast to do. She has a lot of quirks. She's got a lot of wonderful things that make her incredibly exciting to listen to. She also has an incredible story. And I really personally enjoyed connecting with Kat. Both of us have ADHD and you know, I, I know that you're going to be able to maybe tell that throughout the conversation, but it was a very enjoyable one to have nonetheless. So without further ado, here is my conversation, part one with Kat. Hello and welcome to Reclaim Me. Today I am joined by Kat, who is joining me in from Australia. Where are you from, Kat? I'm from Wollongong. Well, not well, exactly. I tell people Wollongong, um, but it's because I live 20 minutes south in a place called Albion Park and everyone it's always like, where is that? So I just say Wollongong because it's easier. It's a gong. But, well, but welcome gong. anyway. <laughs> Thank you. Um, do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm Kat. I live in Abbey Park. I am <laughs> a high school teacher. I have a background in sociology and criminology. Uh, God, I was a musical student at a performing arts school. Um <laughs> I I run a horror website. Um, what? So yeah, I have a horror website called Hear Our Scream. It's dedicated to amplifying marginalized voices. So a lot of our writers are trans women, women and non-binary people. Lots of queer folk. It's really cool. So um, what do you do? Like a horror is it like writing stories. No, it's so it's like movie reviews, book reviews, TV show reviews, interviews, um, editorials. And we just launched our small publication press. So we're publishing four books, five books this year. Yeah. <laughs> that is amazing. We're going to have, I'm going to put that, the link to that in the show notes. I didn't yeah, know. Absolutely. So I'm really oh, yeah. excited to find out more about that. Sometimes I forget that that's what I do in my spare time because I don't really have spare time at the moment. <laughs> so. We've just been laughing like hysterically <laughs> off camera or off uh, recording because this is might be a little bit of an unhinged discussion considering yeah. we're both unmedicated Sorry. ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like maybe I should get medicated. Maybe. I'm trying, but it's not working. But um no, it is it's just one of those funny things and I think, you know, with the experience of ADHD as well, you know, what when somebody asks you what hobbies do you have, you're just like, I've got like seven hundred jobs. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hobbies? What's a hobby? Are you sure it's a hobby uh, or is it something that I'm just really skilled at? Yeah. Is it something that I picked up really quickly and now I've decided to turn it into another business venture? <laughs> um, I literally just spent $3,500 on camera equipment because I decided that I want to shoot live music again. Um, That's awesome. Like, oh, stuff it. I'll do it. So I upgraded like my entire setup. And I'm hoping the package arrives before my grandmother gets home and sees what I've bought. So (laughs) that's so much. But I guess like, so it goes to show like you've got a massive like creative background. You've got an intellectual background and now you've wound up in high school. What's that like? Um, So unhinged. Like kids are weird. (laughs) Like. It's really rewarding. Um, I'm in a super busy period because it's coming up to end of the first semester for my year 12 students. So lots of report writing, lots of getting them ready for their HSE. And then um, just all my junior years trying to get them to actually do work. Um, Because I think COVID really screwed a lot of kids over in that motivation of, you know, coming to school, being at school and getting stuff done. So it's a, it's a little bit tough, but I, I'm really lucky. I have really great students. Um, I work in a really low socioeconomic but co- culturally diverse area, so I'm really, really lucky with all the different kids that I get to meet and their parents and the community. It's it's really it's fantastic. Yeah, that's amazing. And to know that you're going to make an impact on somebody's life in, in some way as well and to try make to try and do what you can with that. Um, I think so many people that have been on this podcast, so many people's stories I've heard, even bloody Adele had a video that went viral recently where she spoke about a teacher that she had growing up. And, you know, I think we often forget as humans who've been to school and been educated how profound some of our teachers were at points in our lives. And I think that's a really amazing thing. It's an underrated profession. Um, It's an underpaid profession, but also I think it's (laughs) – But also it is, it's it's undervalued in the sense, maybe from teachers' perspectives, in remembering how much of an impact they can and do have. Yeah, absolutely. Like my year 11 and 12 society and culture teacher is the reason I went and studied social science and criminology. I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do before I went to like, I got to August before my HSE and was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have no idea. I guess I like social science. So I like winged it and was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do now. That is so amazing. So you're both teaching at the same school? No, no. Oh, no. No, she's down here in Mullingong and I'm up in Campbelltown. So I work up there. That's still pretty amazing though. It's a really cool school. I'm I'm really lucky. Actually, the principal was my year eight visual arts teacher. So... (laughs) It's a really small world. Like you, you can't oh, escape this place. I swear. That's so sweet and so like unheard of. Now that that person has like spent so much time in that school, or at least mm. like in the same or similar type of job. Yeah, yeah. She was at my school for eleven years, and it's been fifteen years since I graduated. And she that's taught insane. my sister. She remembers my sister, but she's like, mm, I don't remember you. And I was like, That's because my sister took your elective ceramics class, bitch. <laughs> Why don't you remember me? I was the cool one. No, my sister was the cool one. <laughs> I was the cool one because I was eccentric. <laughs> See, I was eccentric, but I was the annoying one. Yeah, same, but I think that's what makes you, you know, like I had this realisation the other day that 
you know how people say to to parent to people who are teachers when they become parents, like, oh, it must be really hard for you because of all of those names that you have bad experiences with. <laughs> I would be the reason so many teachers haven't named their kid Maddie. <laughs> I'm definitely the reason that the name Catherine does not exist anymore <laughs> for anyone. Oh, the un- no, absolutely not. <laughs> the undiagnosed ADHD. The spicy oh, brains. <laughs> my spicy brain cost me every lesson for year 12 English. Like I'd rock up to the period and there'd already be a table and chair out in the corridor waiting for me. Because my teacher was like, nope, you're not coming in here. You're out. Get out. Oh, no. That's so bad. But also so funny. <laughs> I was like, at least I'll get work done. So. Honestly, it was probably good for you to get concentrating again. Like, the distractions are too much. I was the distraction. That's the problem. (laughs) Yeah, but when you've got opportunity. (laughs) Uh, And an audience. (laughs) Why would you pass it up? Why would you pass that up? You've got 29 participants. Oh, 100%. And and (laughs) as people who are creative and and eccentric and... and, um, extroverted as well I remember there was one time where we were all giggling while in year eight when our teacher uh was teaching us about sex education and they were so awkward and unengaging with it so I'm at the back with my friends giggling about it and she goes well if you know all about it then why don't you get up and teach the class and I was like (laughs) challenge accepted (laughs) oh no so I got up and I just started to sing when a man loves a woman. <laughs> she ended up pissing herself laughing anyway. She thought it was so funny. Anyway, then I got sent to the principal's office. <laughs> Which I digress. But no, it is it is amazing um to hear what you've been doing and to hear that you've got so much else going on. But I guess we are here to also speak about some trauma that you've experienced in your life. Do you mind? Yeah. I guess, starting that with where you were in your life when that began or when that happened? Yeah. Well, um, first and foremost, I am an adult survivor of uh, child abuse and neglect. Um, I think for me it would have been when my parents separated. Um, It was quite a traumatic um, separation. My mum had actually cheated on my dad and fallen pregnant. And um, basically my dad was willing to stay, which obviously would have given him some of his own trauma. However, I think my mum had other plans. Uh, She's not always been the most mentally stable person from things like um, what my grandmother's told me and her own siblings and just people that have interacted with my mum. And so we went and stayed with my grandma when I was five years old. And um, then she moved in with the man that was the father of my my middle sister. So we were living with him. He he seemed okay when we first started living with him. Um, my mum, I don't really remember a time that she was normal or, like, stable in a way. Like, maybe those memories, like, were before my parents separated. In a, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know much. I don't really know much about my mum, to be honest. Like, my... Knowledge and relationship with her is very surface level. Yeah. So when you say, like, she wasn't very normal, would you, like, you obviously didn't have a close relationship, but was she, like, a 
an erratic type person. There wasn't like any schedule. What, what does that, what did that feel like as a child? Or is it just like escaped your mind? Yeah, I, I think I had a tendency to disassociate a lot until I hit about 14 when um, I was going into therapy and, and living with my grandmother who had custody of me and all my siblings at one point. But, um, oh, gosh, yeah, I don't, We I know we moved into a house with this person um, that my mum had met and then fell pregnant to. And my mum had never been abusive before that point. Like, I don't, I don't remember her ever hurting me, um, never being verbally abusive. My mum didn't really drink either. Um, she, she just didn't like to drink, drink a lot from what I remember. But, um, I think he did, but, um, he didn't really like me and my sister. Obviously, you know, we had impacted plans that he had had with my mum and, you know, uh, he didn't really like my dad that much. He wouldn't let my dad into the house when he'd come to pick us up. Um, he'd like make my dad wait in the driveway and, um, let my, my dad and my mum remained friends. Like to this day, my dad rarely says anything negative about my mum. Um, despite everything she has said and done, um, he just, he just, he won't. And I, I think that's quite, um, respectful of him in a way that he just won't even discuss her. And yeah, yeah. so the first memories I have of living there is probably like my sixth birthday. Um, like I had a princess party, like that was like the first normal thing I remember and probably the only normal thing I remember, like having a birthday, having barbecues, um, my middle sister turning one, she had her birthday. Our birthdays are all quite close together. Um, so she was in October and my sister and I both in November. So our birthdays were quite, you know, in summer, nice weather, barbecues. I had a princess party. I'd I think my sister Emily had a jumping castle from what I remember. And so I I couldn't even tell you how long we lived with this person. I I don't know because I I think things moved very quickly. Um, I remember one night I was going through a bedwetting phase. Um, Obviously lots of anxiety. I've just, you know, moved from my mom and dad's house. Now it's my mom and this random guy. And I went into the room and I was like, hey, mom, I've wet the bed. And not, I remember my mom getting up and being like, oh, good, don't worry, I'll get you changed. We'll sort you out. You know, we'll, yeah. we'll flip your mattress, we'll, we'll get you in the shower. And he came into the room, like, yelling because I'd woken him up. And he <laughs> he demanded that my mom punish me for it. And I, I, and I remember she did smack me, but I, I don't remember if it was that same night, but I remember him yelling, saying, she can't keep doing this. You've got to punish her. Like, as if that was going to help me stop wetting the bed. As if that wasn't going to exacerbate the bedwetting. Everything. Yeah, like, absolutely. And how cruel for somebody who's not your parent to be trying to inflict that. And punishment in most people's minds isn't physical especially to a child, but it sounds like maybe he was demanding that it had to be. Yeah. I just always had a sense that the people my mum surrounded herself with and her just didn't like me. Like from the get-go, I'm just like, my mum despises my existence. And I don't know if it was a combination of me being, you know, a massive representation of my dad 
I am like the spit out of my dad's mouth. Um, I look so much like him. I behave so much like him. Like we're just two peas in a pod kind of thing. And um, so I don't know if that was it or if like me being outspoken, because as I got older, I got very outspoken about how my mother treated me. But um, we, (laughs) that didn't last very long. Um, I think my mum might have been hospitalized either before living with this man or after i'm not 100 percent sure but i know she was hospitalized in uh, mental health care and i was staying with my grandmother and then very shortly after we're with my mom and her high school sweetheart out at another house and i would have been in year one so at this point i'd already been to three different primary schools right so i'd gone and to yeah different a lot of homes schools. Different yeah. homes, different primary carers, different. There's a lot of change. There's a lot yeah. um, of difference in there. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that my mum and dad moved around a lot as well when I was a baby. Um, my dad worked two jobs and tried to pay the rent, but my mum is irresponsible with money. Later diagnosed with bipolar type 1. So <laughs> and, and, and that gives me more compassion for the situation that my parents were in. Because this is the early 90s. Like, well, bipolar type 1, I don't even think it hit the DSM-5 at that point. No one would have known. No, and the stigma as well surrounding things like that, that are mental health, anything. You know, there's that kind of old trope of, you know, if you live in Victoria, of being sent to La Rundle, which is a mental health hospital slash asylum. Yeah. Um, which completely off topic, but with that sticker behind you that says, <laughs> watch more horror more movies. Horror movies. That be, that that hospital became abandoned. Yeah. Um, it's so it was a really hunting ghost site. Yeah. Now. You can go on ghost. It is. And stuff. I yeah. think they've renovated it, but yes. Um. But I yeah, back back. I go in it. <laughs> I was in it a few times, and it, I went on a, my I went on a first date once with somebody <laughs> there. But again, we can do that as a palate cleanser at the end. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I know what um, you mean as well, though. For, for yeah. your poor mother, like to have empathy for her in this moment she is really struggling with her mental health and there's instability in her life as well. She's yeah. got young children to look after. That must've been really difficult. My mum was 24 with three kids. Wow. Yeah. I can't even imagine doing that. By the time my mum was 30, she had five kids. Wow. Yeah. So like I, I, I can, and it's taken a lot of like therapy to be able to put myself in her shoes and try and see things from her perspective without having to forgive her. Absolutely. And you can have empathy for somebody's mental health and you can have understanding for different things. It doesn't mean that they what they did didn't hurt you or cause harm or Absolutely. what they did was irresponsible. You know, those are there's intent and there's negligence and there's all of those different types of things. But at the end of the day, and I'm not a person that would ever say something along the lines of they're your mother, you have to anything. Like yeah. blood doesn't, in my opinion, blood doesn't mean shit. No. Um, <laughs> but I think as well, yeah, there's a level where you can empathize with so many kids a young age yeah, and a absolutely. mental health issue at some yeah. level. It's definitely helped heal my inner child by saying, hey, mum was in a really shitty spot. Uh, it doesn't excuse anything she did, but it gives me some insight, especially, you know, going through my own mental health uh, journey and whatnot that I can see why someone would 
fall so easily into being abusive and neglectful and and whatnot. And that's an amazing thing to be able to give yourself, you know, that it maybe wasn't the fact that you weren't loved or weren't liked or, you know, maybe it was because other things had fallen out of place as well. Yeah, I just really felt like she, oh, to this day, I still swear my mum hates me, but she'll (laughs) pretend she loves me. Yeah, so there's like a an underlying seething there. Oh yeah, always, always. <laughs> so you were in another school by with your mother's yeah. high school yeah. sweetheart. Yeah, year one. Where did you go to from there? Um, so we we were there for a couple of uh, no, we weren't there for a couple of years because I started year two in Wollongong. So my he became like referred to as my stepdad. Um, he got a really good job at the steelworks down here. So he was a, I don't know, he used to do lots of welding and stuff. So he would like help weld all the stuff at the steelworks. He'd work really long hours. Like we moved into a dream house. Like we had a five bedroom house with a swimming pool and a car and like things that normal families have, like fairly, fairly normal. Um, however, he, was developing a like an alcoholism issue at that point. Um, he drank a lot. Um, we were left home a lot on our own. Um, at this point, my mum was pregnant with my youngest sister. So she was born in 1998. So it was around then. So it would have been eight or nine. So I was in year two at school. Yeah. And um my mum has always been very confrontational. So it didn't matter what you said to my mum. She would always act in re- like with aggression. She was never uh, irrational or logical, not pragmatic. Like those things you cannot use to describe my mum, <laughs> like ever. And um, the school knew it. Like the school knew that my mum was mentally unfit. And that's when I first started witnessing uh, the domestic violence perpetrated by him against my mother. So it escalated, like, so he, I was with them from when I was seven until I was just before my 14th birthday. So I don't know how many years that is. How long is that? Like, um, yeah, six years, six years, seven years, <laughs> six, seven years. Yeah. And our life kind of, because of the alcoholism, he was also gambling, um, so a lot of my sisters and I, like, our needs were unmet even though like my dad was paying child support, he was paying $250 a week. And this is in 1998. So they had a private agreement on how much child support my dad would pay. So they agreed that that would be it and that my mum wouldn't take him to court over it. Mind you, she would have gotten a hell of a lot less. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah, but it wasn't being spent on my sister and I. So um, even though, you know, that child support was meant to pay for our school excursions, our school uniform, stuff to send us back to school, my dad was still footing the bill for all of that. Yeah. Always. And if my mum needed money, dad was giving her money because she would say it was for us. So I wasn't too sure if this is when my mum's drug habit um, kind of kicked off. I I don't know because I don't remember seeing a lot of it until she got comfortable doing it but living in that house I remember us coming home my stepdad had driven home drunk with us in the car oh my and word. that was 
the night that he basically smashed my mum's head into the garage brick wall and, like, dragged her along the ground. And I don't remember much beyond sitting in the car and being absolutely terrified because I'd never seen anyone hurt someone that way. You know, eight years old, that's – my dad never treated my mum like that. Even her previous partner – oh, no, the previous partner did. I lie. Um, (laughs) There was an incident where he – the previous partner in the house in Sydney – had dragged my mother out onto the driveway and had her like crawled up in a ball and he was hitting her with a leather belt. And my uncle who um, had heard about it from a neighbor came down and had to like restrain him from hitting my mother. And that's why she was hospitalized. That makes sense. Yeah. So it was pretty like confronting. I, I don't, a lot of my memories with my mother and those people are violence based. Yeah, and it sounds like very, very gappy as well, which is such a common thing for people who have experienced especially child trauma. And where there is childhood trauma present, you know, those disorders like dissociative disorder that can still affect people to this day, um, which is incredibly disabling and harmful uh, in many ways, you know, those things can crop up. If you've learned to dissociate as a defense mechanism or if you've blocked it out for your own safety, you know, to have a child have to see that level of abuse. And, you know, it wouldn't just be the instances of violence that you're talking about. You know, you can also imagine the underlying tensions and the walking on eggshells. Like it it sounds like it's a bit of a pressure cooker situation. Yeah, absolutely. We um We moved, I want to say, seven times. So once a year at least until I turned 14 and then I moved like basically into my forever home. You know how like pets that get adopted? That was me. <laughs> <laughs> but you moved out of living with your mum and into living with yeah. your grandmother? Yeah, yeah. So cool. my mum uh, has a tendency to cut people off. So a lot of our family didn't know that this was going on. Um, I didn't tell my dad because I was so terrified of being taken away from my mum. I don't know what loyalty I felt obliged to give her, but I, yeah, I was absolutely terrified. Um, I hadn't been hurt by my mother again at this point that I remember. Um, We moved house again. My grandma was living with us because she used to travel to and from Bali a lot after her divorce. So she'd like spend, you know, three months here and then go back to her house in Bali. And it was, it was the coolest thing. And so, you know, everything was peachy keen and peachy fine when grandma was there. But afterwards, I I know that's when life really took a downward turn. There was an instance where my stepfather had basically knocked my mum unconscious with, like, the vacuum cleaner, like, you know, the long piece. He hit her across the back. And I thought, I thought she was dead. I thought, my mum is dead. And I, I can only imagine what the neighbours thought were going on in the house, like constantly, like the fighting was ridiculous. And it was around this time that my mum also started perpetrating violence and not so much against me at this point. It was more against my stepfather um, and it wasn't alcohol induced. It She was just a really violent person. And I think this is where she really upped her like weed smoking at this point. like. And, yeah, I don't remember seeing it much, but I remember when we moved into a house, um, we actually had a docks worker come around um, because our neighbour across the street had heard me screaming 
from my mother. I don't I yeah. don't remember what happened. At this point, my sister and I were living basically in this tiny little room that was a room converted from a laundry. It had no window. It was always cold. We were left alone a lot. We lived near an RSL, so like they just walk. My sister and I became parents at 10. <laughs> and we had at this point three younger siblings. So That's yeah, two younger sisters and a younger brother who um the youngest sister and I were the ones that really copped abuse from my mom. I don't know why. Um, the others just seemed to get left alone. And after that house, we were moved to a department of housing house in a really rough area of Wollongong. Um, lots of stolen cars, lots of unemployment, just random strangers at our house all the time. And that's when my mum started openly smoking weed. Right. Um, we weren't being fed. Uh, we were often going to school, like in the school clothes that we slept in. <laughs> Like um, hygiene was a zero because mum just didn't even care if her teenage daughters got in the shower or not. I didn't even want to tell her when I got my first period. I told my dad because I was just like, he's going to give a shit. He's well, gonna, yeah. He'll do something. And I know a lot of people will hear this and say, well, what was your dad doing? Um, my dad is an ex- ex-military serviceman who suffers from post-traumatic stress and I believe is most likely on the autism spectrum. So I think that there's just a lot of things that he was very overwhelmed with that didn't know what to do. Um, Previous to that, there was an incident where, so the house before we moved to Berkeley to the Housing Commission house, uh, I was in a fight with my mom. I would have been in year six or year seven, and I had a bunk bed in my bedroom. My sister and I shared a bedroom. And I kicked my bedroom window in, like smashed the whole thing. And my dad came down and my mum basically forced him to yell at me. I went into the backyard to get away from him and he grabbed me. And at that point, our neighbours intervened and was like, don't you touch that child. Dad, I think, had been manipulated a lot by my mother and worked up in the one hour and a half it takes to get from where my dad lived to my house. And, um, yeah, to this day my dad still will tell me how ashamed he is of himself. In that moment? Yeah, absolutely. Because my dad's never smacked me, ever. Yeah. He has yelled at me. I mean, like, my sister and I did trash the toilets at McDonald's once, so <laughs> he was a little bit pissed off about, about that. Well, like, you can understand that, and you can even understand, like, a frustration that you would get to, you know, you've seen parents, like, just grab their children and not necessarily yeah. in an abusive way, but, you know, reach a point where they hold their arms like, why did you do that? Or they, you know, you can just see a point where the pressure cooker, the, you know, the steam start has to get out at some point. Yeah. But also for somebody who doesn't have a propensity to do that, it is environment as well. Um, and what has she been saying? What has she been doing? Yeah. You know, and it exactly. doesn't ex- it does not excuse the behavior. And I'm really glad to hear that there were neighbors oh, who have I'd... called Department of um, yeah. Children's Services and that there has been intervention in that way. 
because so yeah. often that bystander effect happens and people don't do shit. Oh, yeah. my Those neighbours were like, as soon as they said something, my dad just let go and was like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. And then I'm pretty sure he yelled at my mother after that. So, <laughs> but um, at that same house, um, oh, I was a really nasty kid. I mean, like, I said some pretty horrible things. Um, once my stepdad called me a bastard, I don't know what I'd done, but no doubt I was being a smart ass. And I looked at him and I said, I can't be a bastard. My parents were married when I was born. Like, referring to his kids. And he belt me. Like, I had a hand-shaped bruise on my leg for, like, a month. And at that point, my grandmother intervened. It was during the Sydney Olympics. She took us to her house in Granville and was like, you're never going back home. You're never going back home. We had a lawyer intervene. Um, we tried everything that we could. And eventually we were still sent back to live with my mom. And I think it's just, it goes without saying, but it is almost, sorry, it go, it usually goes without saying, but we might as well say it now anyway. Like it does not matter what a child has done. They do not warrant being beaten oh. for that. Like that's a good call. You know yeah. what I mean? I don't even know if I would have known. I only actually learned what bastard meant with Game of Thrones. Like, I didn't know oh, that that's what that meant. Oh, I used it constantly against my mother. <laughs> and so I'd, you know, like, I, I just was very, at this point, over being the, like, the punching bag. Like, I was taken to, and this is, like, early signs of ADHD. Like, uh, my impulsivity, being very outspoken, I'm yeah. um, not thinking about what I say and also uh, emotional dysregulation. And so I was taken to anger management at 10 because my right. mother thought I had anger issues. And girls back when I was 10, so I was 10 in uh, 2000. So 2009, I turned 10. And um, yeah. And as soon as I started discussing the domestic violence at home, I was immediately pulled out. Because back then, your parents had to be there in a therapy session. Right. They had to be there. Now I know that's not the case. I think things no. have changed. Policy has changed. Practice has changed. Parents are a lot more, um, like, respecting of child children's boundaries and safe spaces. And my mother, I think, went with the intention to make sure I didn't say anything. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say because I think – People have understood now, people who work with children, that they're never going to tell the truth in front of the oh, perpetrator, that you know? Problem. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that was my mum's problem. I was yeah. like, my stepdad hits me and hits my mum. I love that. And that, that was you the were... last time I ever went. So with, did that, I, I don't love that for you, obviously. I mean, I just love that you were able to do that. That's something that yeah. no children does. It's something that they, you shouldn't be in the position to have to do that, but the fact that you did um dob i think is awesome yeah and nothing was done uh obviously i was pulled out but funny story that same psychologist became my psychologist when i was give like custody was given to my grandma so i went back and saw her so after obviously other things have happened and there's been a formal a decision that happened. yeah <laughs> Oh, wow. That would have yeah, been so um we ended up back with her and she's like, "Wait a second. I think i treated you when you were like 10." Yeah, you could have pulled me yeah. out of the home then and saved me yeah, from a lot of done something about it. <laughs> torment. But thanks. I'm glad that we're here hanging out together. Cheers. Um, Fuck. That's so difficult. That house 
And those three years that I was there was the most horrific of my life, hands down. Um, We often went to school without food. Uh, My mum had once again cut my grandma off from um, seeing us. So my mum has a tendency, no accountability, you're in the wrong, we're not talking anymore. Yeah. And then she let people back in her life again. And then it, it was very narcissistic of her in a way that she just controlled her, the people around her that way and used my sisters and I and my brother as like bargaining chips. Like if you don't do this, you won't get to see the kids. And um, I don't really, I don't really remember much about my dad during this period, which is really sad because I know he was there. I know he was there the night I got arrested at 13 years old. Um. <laughs> I had gotten into basically a public fight out the front of a community centre. I was assaulted by police officers. I was assaulted by an older male and I was the one arrested. So good fun. I even had handcuffs put on me. And little did I know that my rights as a minor do not include um, the legal use of handcuffs on me. So that was, yeah. That is absolutely outrageous. It was just fucked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what what was the situation there? If you don't imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, ninety six percent replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a thirty night guarantee. Plus, get fifteen percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Am I asking like what um, happened? Like... Was it just like a scuffle broke out or? No, not exactly. So there was a teenager of one of my mum's friends and my mum's friend and her mum, sorry, the girl's mum and my mum had gotten into a disagreement. And my mum had gone to collect the girl, like my siblings from like like an after school kids club kind of thing. 
and it was like a fair walk from our house now that I remember it. Um, and I get a phone call from my mum telling me that this girl is down there threatening to hurt her. And at the time, I was friends with, like, a lot of the unsavory people because that was a way of survival. That's just yep. how you survive there. You you can't ignore these people and expect to not get, you know, followed home from the bus stop and, and not get tormented. So I was like, well, if I can't beat them, I'll join them. Yeah. And so I'd gotten on the phone to them. Um, a couple of us all went up there and then, like, all hell broke loose. The police were already on their way because this girl had actually assaulted my mom at this point. And, um, yeah, at 13, I was just incredibly aggressive, incredibly angry, just not able to think about anything. I also, like, the area I lived in, that was just how you dealt with things. Like, there was no logical way to do things. Violence was the answer. It's just quite shocking as well, though, that a mother would call her daughter to come into a violent situation like that. You know, like my instinct, and I'm not a mother, but would be to never tell my daughter where I am so that she's not put in the line of fire or that she's not surrounded by these people who are obviously dangerous. You know, I'd be calling triple zero or a friend or something. I wouldn't be calling my daughter, which just shocks me that, (laughs) you know, sees you more as a friend maybe than a daughter who is dependent on her, on her that she needs to protect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it was really, and, and, and at that time, like my mum had really upped her like psychological abuse, her physical abuse. Like I don't, I don't remember a day where she didn't do something to hurt me. It's yeah. like it was her life mission to do something every day to make sure she'd fucked up my day or hurt me in some way. Um, yeah, and is that was, what you mean by them when you sorry, is that what you mean when you said like this is the worst period of, of yeah, it all? Is, is it in like bad. totality of it all in the the relentlessness in yeah. every aspect? Yeah, absolutely. I was just the the punching bag. Um, and then she at this point was the perpetrator of domestic violence against my stepdad, who, um, I don't remember him even really being physical with my mother except to get her away from him yeah. when we were living there. He he might have. I might have blocked it out. Um, he was drinking a lot more. He was disappearing for days at a time. He was often arrested and taken, like, to, um, like to prison a couple of times on domestic violence charges. But I think my mum should have been taken too. Like, it was horrible. We'd had the police at our house, like, two nights a week. And that's just not a healthy environment for a kid to grow up in. Like the amount no. of just trauma damage that that's left on your poor, like nervous responses and oh yeah, my and life is stuffed. Yeah. <laughs> I have not. It's just like like tapped out. <laughs> yeah, yeeted out of here. Not today, thank Basically. you. Um, <laughs> but um, at this point, my yeah. mom was using a like. She was smoking a lot of weed, but I think she might have been using other drugs at this point. Yeah. Um, just because we never had money in the house. Um, like, we never had food. My grandma was bringing us food, even though my mum had, like, said, don't come near my kids. So my grandma would actually meet us at our bus stop and pick us up, take us to have breakfast at her house, and then she'd drive us to school every day. She did that for my sister and I. 
And it's just a scary thought as well that there are people who are aware of this level of neglect. There are people who have said something. There are people who have done something. There are previous reports. You know, you weren't failed at every single stage. You still had people who were, it seems like, looking out for you. And then when you think about it like that, you're just like, wait, hang on. Why were you there? Why weren't you? Why was I there? Why would your grandmother have to go to so many lengths to give you food? Yeah, and she was reporting this every step of the way. So yeah, that's what- all the time. Every time she, every time she saw us, she'd report our appearance, our mental state, what we were eating. Like I was, I was an incredibly malnourished teen, like tiny, like stick thin, and it still causes me like body image issues. When I look at myself and I think about me, you know, because in even up until when I was 17, I was still recovering from being malnourished. Like I still hadn't built anything on my bones from years of neglect. And it was just really hard to, like, it's hard to look at myself and be like, why aren't I tiny anymore? And I'm like, wait a second, you didn't eat. Like you didn't have a proper meal. You didn't have proper diet. And then I guess with the stuff that your grandmother was raising, the stuff with the neighbours raising those issues, the stuff like your school is aware that you're oh yeah, unclean, that you don't have food at school, that you're misbehaving in many circumstances. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been able to access any docs reports or anything to see why they've made those decisions? I've been offered the access and I've said no. Yeah. I don't need to know about things that I don't remember, so I'd rather not touch those things. It's just um for my own sanity, it's... You know, um, I had both sides of my family, my dad's side and my mum's side, reporting to docs constantly. Yeah. And I, I don't need to be reminded of how they were failed in trying to help us as well. Yeah, and how desperate and, dis- like, disheartening and so, yeah, I think probably actually desperate is the proper word, like, yeah, without, without being able to do anything. But it's a really good reflection, I think, on you and the healing that you have done as well to be able yeah. to just reflect in and of yourself and go, look, this is just not what I need, and not no. pursue that. No, I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> it's just, yeah. yeah. And I've, I've had this conversation with my sister often, you know, like, could you imagine what's in those things? And we're like, oh, <laughs> no. Oh, God. Because, like, we, one thing that I must admit about my sister and I is that we will laugh about our trauma, but it, it's just a normal process. Like, you gotta you got to laugh about it. And we'll sit and be like, oh, how fucked was mum? <laughs> like... That was fucked up. Like, do you she did this? And we'd be like, oh, my God, I can't believe she did that. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, but I think there gets there's, like, two things in that, and um, I'm going to speak about it on a podcast that I'm releasing recently as well. It's just funny because I only recorded it the other day. Um, <laughs> but we were talking about that same kind of things, and you've got, like, nervous laughter and you've got, you know, feigning laughter. Then you've got, like, your trauma responses as well and then (laughs) I think sometimes you're like when you've gone past this being a traumatic memory it kind of is funny like when you're sharing that with somebody and you're just like do you remember this moment (laughs) like they're so bad but it's just so and you're like we shouldn't be laughing we shouldn't be laughing I'm like Emily you are going to hell for this (laughs) but it's it's, with me (laughs) yeah but it's one of those things as well and I think it's just it's such a great thing about having people who have experienced trauma around you or that you can have yeah. these, like you're not being dark about it. You're not minimizing it in any way, but sometimes when these things are really crazy, having a laugh at how ridiculous that behavior was 
yeah. can be quite healing as well. It like is. it gives, it can give it less gravitas in terms of how it impacts you. And if you've already moved yeah. forward from it. Our favorite thing is to, um, if we hurt ourselves, we'll message the other one and be like, get mum. And it's funny because like, we won't go, we're like, yeah, it's not something we're going to do. <laughs> yeah. Cause she's never going to care. Like, <laughs> she you know, it is. Shit. No, she never did. In fact, she was the one hurting you. So I think it is quite, it. that's well, it, real dark humour, I feel. That's yeah, not. That's us. We, yeah. We have, like, and my youngest brother is, oh, I want to say 15. And he'll say, like, the most out-of-pocket shit and be like, I just have a dark sense of humour. I was like, yeah, you have, you come and sit with Emily and I and you can, you can hear some real dark humour. It's going to be about your mum and you're probably not going to like it because you, yeah. like, my brother still sees his mum like our mum. So I'm not going to do, I'm not going to damage him like that. (laughs) Yeah. Not going to like make him see what you had to go through, which was obviously a different experience. But I think that's a distinction to make clearly though as well. Some people will refer to dark humor and say that those things are funny, but they're referring to racism or sexism. That's my brother. I didn't want to say that, but that's yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but they call that dark humor. And like that's not dark humor. What you're using right now is dark humor. <laughs> like that's yeah, I like it's it's from the deep recess of my soul. That shit. <laughs> like the worst part is when I say things to my partner and I'm like, oh, you don't get that. Um, <laughs> I need to call Emily because I've I like I'll sit and have a like an unhinged like laughing fit at something. And he'll be like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I've got to call Emily. And he'll listen to the conversation and be like, I don't ha- I don't understand how that's funny. I don't get it. And I was like, yeah, your trauma is different, babe. Don't worry. It's so good as well because I think when you, sh- and this is a really sign of good friendship, I feel, or good partnership as well, when you do start to share a lot of those experiences and you can start to laugh with them, like you're not laughing at it. It is their joke. It is their thing. But when you can start to kind like of. share it. He's going to yeah. listen to this and be like, I never fucking knew that about your life. And I'm going to be like, oh, sorry. <laughs> now it's <laughs> all about jokes. Remember. Yeah, sorry, now it's all about jokes makes sense. <laughs> Do you get it now? <laughs> but, um, yeah, those that house was that house was wild. Like when I was 13, someone that I was really good friends with died in a stolen car accident, um, which was all over the news. And um, I was really good friends with his cousin. And um, I just remember how he went really bad. He started smoking meth at that point um, with a couple of other older boys. Like I was 13 hanging out with like 16, 17-year-olds. Yeah. And like my friends wanted to come hang out with me because I could go do whatever I wanted. I didn't have a bedtime. I didn't have a curfew. I just walked inside when I wanted to, and I didn't want to be in the house anyway. If I was in the house, I had to stay in my room. I was allowed out for dinner, and that was it. There was no family time watching the news or neighbours or anything like that. My sister and I had our own TV, and we were literally expected to not be seen and not be heard. That's just how our mum treated us. Yeah. All of us kids. Like, we were an inconvenience to her life. She just, yeah, she shouldn't have been a mum. I'm grateful that she decided to be. <laughs> yeah like I, I adore my siblings but even to this day my grandma will say I wish I never had your mother and I'm like ah oh, hello and she's like yeah well obviously I don't regret it but sometimes sometimes I just wish I never had your mother 
Yeah. And it's a lot. And I think like there's a couple of things there in what you've just said as well. Like, you know, often when we're younger and there were those kids that could do whatever you wanted and you had strict parents, you'd be like, oh my God, they just don't get up. Blah, blah, blah. But you don't realize at that time how much your those parents who were worried about where you are, um, they really care. And you you, yeah. you feel like that 13-year-old who's going out to hang out with 16-year-olds is really cool. But inside, we didn't know what they were going through as kids. And I feel like there was a few people that I knew growing up that were like that. And I think maybe that's another sign of probably abuse and neglect going on at home. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because and all the kids I was hanging out with were all abused and neglected as well. Yeah. It was horrible. Absolutely. And I am just so grateful that I got out because a lot of those kids did it. Like one of them recently, well, not recently, maybe eight years passed away. Um, not too sure why, not too sure how. I just know that he did because um, his mum was a friend of my mum's and I just heard on the grapevine. Another one's got like a whole bunch of kids. They were parents before they were even 18. Um, and that that kind of stuff could have happened to me if I stayed there, if if I didn't have an out. So it was, yeah, I was just before, it was just after I got arrested that my mum you know, was like dragging me down hallways by my hair and like calling me names and telling me how disgusting I am, that I look too much like my father and my father's this and my father's that and I hate your father and I hate you. And it like, it was just ongoing. Like, I don't even remember proper conversations with my mum. The only time my mum was ever nice was when there were adults there Um, that might have told her to stop. Yeah, somebody to hold her accountable. Yeah, so it was never in front of my grandma, never in front of my aunt, never in front of my dad. Yeah, And so it was kind of like if I told them that, she probably thought in her mind that they wouldn't believe me because I was an eccentric kid. I just said whatever. But that stuff I kept very private. I was like, I don't want people knowing that that's how I'm treated. And I think about, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's unspoken. And it is quite heartbreaking to think that people did know People were doing things, but then people also weren't doing things. You know yeah. what I mean? Like there's there's such a failure on so many aspects, system-wise, your mother's wise, you know, people not being able to challenge her. And and in many ways I find from what you're saying, maybe they were just trying not to escalate things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. My mum my mum still is incredibly volatile. And her drug abuse did not help that at yeah. all. I know that um the night that I packed up and left, um, she had tried to stab me with a pair of scissors. Um, I don't know why we were fighting. I think I told her that um, that we were seeing Grandma, and she'd found out because if we if she found out that we were seeing Grandma, like we would cop it. Yeah. Like I'd have the absolute shit kicked out of me, and. Um, So I know that all I remember is I was like on my bed in a bowl with my hands like above my head and she was yelling. She had a pair of scissors in her hand. She's like standing over my bed and my younger sister, Emily, actually grabbed her. And I literally just put all this shit into a backpack and I left. I was 13. I had no fucking idea what I was going to do, but I I knew I didn't want to be there. And she told me, don't you fucking come back here. And I was like, good, I don't I don't want to be in your shit house. And um by sheer dumb luck, 
I had two friends who were walking down near our corner store, saw that I was absolutely distraught. And they were like, hey, come to my place. Like, my parents are there. You can come out, hang out. You can go back home or you can call your grandma. And I was like, fuck it, I'm calling grandma. And I never went back. (laughs) Never, ever went back. And then five days later, my sister Emily came with me. Wow. She couldn't be without me. I didn't, I was so tempted to go back home because that's where Emily was. But I knew that she was safe from my mom. And you'd build up such an intense bond just being in that environment together and being so close together as well. I guess what I don't understand when, when people like your mother abuse and neglect is that they're stopping you from seeing your grandmother who was providing care for you, who was giving you food, who was doing all of these things. Like you would think that she would just hand you over if you were that much of a burden to her, but it's, it's a weird pays for a child. If you're a single mother. Yeah. That's the thing. It's, it's not even just the money. I feel like I don't, I don't know, but in, in other circumstances. So like, please explain your experience with this as well, but it was all in a lot of my friends' experiences who've gone through nothing as bad as this, but similar things, especially with separation. It was all about winning. Like yeah. to be seen as winning was important and to be seen as winning was to have the kids. Uh, it wasn't necessarily like that. For my mum only cared about my mom cared about getting child support. She cared about feeding a drug addiction. She was ropeable when she started losing money for my sister and I. Like, I I think my grandma was just even tempted to let her keep it and just be like, I'll just keep the girls, don't worry about it. And I just, I didn't talk to her for years after that. Maybe, maybe not until I was, maybe in year 10. Um, in year 10, my mum had, by then my mum had separated from the younger sibling's father and had met someone else. She'd also started using intravenous drugs at that point. So like heroin? I don't know. I just know that my siblings found needles in my mum's bedroom, so I don't know what she was injecting. It was probably crystal meth because I know that can be used intravenously. Um, And they eventually were taken by docs and given to my grandma. Yeah. So we weren't taken by docs, but my grandma had custody of us, yep. like through whatever means and legal guardianship. But my dad helped organize that with um, his best friend, who's a lawyer, who, who was a lawyer at the time. And um, so we were living in like this three bedroom house. I finally had my own bedroom. Like I didn't have to like bunk with my sister anymore. Um, we were playing soccer had my first job, and then my three younger siblings come to live with us who are all incredibly traumatised, especially my youngest sister, just because of my mum targeted her the way that she targeted me. The boys were fine. The boys, not fine, but they were safe. They they were safe. Well, the youngest was. So it was my two oldest, like, middle sisters and then my brother because my youngest brother wasn't born till like, just before my 18th birthday. So. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, there's an 18-year gap between us. Um, and it was great um, when they came to live with us. I mean, they they had to go to a lot of therapy, um, so they were in therapy. We moved to a really, really nice house. Uh, my grandma, it was like split level, so downstairs was a self-contained unit 
And my sister Emily and I lived downstairs. So I had a bathroom, a kitchen, a lounge room. We had our own like teenage setup. Uh, but we'd go up every night to have grandma cook us dinner, of course, because I wasn't doing that for myself. Um, <laughs> but we could take care of ourselves at that point. Like Our grandma had really equipped us with all the skills. We could cook pasta. We could make schnitzel. That's all that mattered. <laughs> yeah, the best, two best know. foods in the world. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Potato, potato mash. <laughs> That's all we need. Um, <laughs> and so we'd lived there for a couple of years um, before... So my mom at this point was pregnant with my youngest brother. So I was in my last year of school and she had moved to Queensland because um, my youngest brother had been born or would be born addicted to methamphetamines. Right. So he, the custody of him was taken immediately as soon as he was born, even though she was in another state. So there was intergovernment agencies working together to ensure that my mum couldn't have custody of my youngest brother. So it took 18 months to two years of her in Queensland before she could take my brother home. And it should just never have been at all. How does that work? So the baby's born in Queensland yeah, because it has to be, but the primary residence would be in New South Wales. Well, in New South Wales, they already had a custody, like kind of some custody arrangement that my mum, as soon as the baby was born, would not have custody or access. So she thought by going to Queensland that this wouldn't be a thing. That right, it would, like, right, right. Null and void that, like, that order coming into place. Cool. That makes sense. I, I kind of thought that the, um, the best hospital was in Queensland and no. she was forced to go no, she there. She was fleeing New South Wales. <laughs> right. Um, but, and uh, so was the the baby was with the in the system from yeah. birth until yeah. two, and then yeah. your youngest brother was given to her. Uh, yeah, I think eighteen months to two months later, she had to to two years later, she had to prove that she was clean, uh, which she was at the time. Um, and so she'd gotten in contact with my grandma, telling my grandma that she needed somewhere to come to when she came back to Wollongong. And my grandmother was like, yep, sure, you can stay here until you're back on your feet. And it basically blew up in my grandmother's face. And um, my mum eventually was given custody back of her kids. Yeah, so it blew up in grandma's face. Grandma just thought she was doing the right thing and that um, everything would just work out. And my grandma to this day was like, I just thought we could all live together. And I was like, I cannot live with my mother. Like, I can't be around her. So that was just, yeah, I would have been in my first year of uni. It was like the school holidays between, uh, because I got really sick during this period as well, um, and I was in and out of hospital. I'd actually crushed my occipital nerve in my spine, and they didn't know what was wrong with me. So, like, I was just in and out of hospital for, like, two or three weeks. Um, It was a nightmare. Lucky grandma was there, so. That would have been so excruciating as well, like. And to oh, have your mother yeah. and a baby there at that time with a crushed neck. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I was just like, I'm sorry over this shit. Um, but um, I'm led to believe that my mother had coached my siblings into making statements against my grandmother about things that had happened that I know for a fact didn't happen. Like, apparently my grandma locked them in a cupboard. Why would my grandma lock them in a cupboard? Things like that where I'm like, that's something my mum would do, not something my grandmother would do. And she was talking about how, like, 
my grandma was like smacking my like brothers and sisters. My grandma at the time was like 60 with severe like disabling arthritis. Like she wasn't chasing kids down corridors and hallways to smack them. I'll tell you that much right now. Those kids, they just, they were really flourishing at the time until my mum showed up. Like they were in therapy. Um, My youngest brother was diagnosed with Asperger's, which was what it was called at the time. Obviously now autism spectrum disorder. He goes by Asperger's because that's his choice. Um, And yeah, so like everybody was just really doing their own thing. And I was in my first year of uni. My sister had just finished her traineeship as a bookkeeper. Um, She was moving out for the first time. So that was really exciting. Um, And I was like getting heartbroken because she was going to be leaving me for like the first time ever. So that was really hard. (laughs) And yeah, so it got to a point where eventually um, we lost the house because my grandma was actually um, receiving payments from DCJ to look after my niece, uh, my nieces, my brothers and sisters. And um, after my mum took the kids, we couldn't afford to live there anymore. So my grandma and I were both homeless for about six months. So my grandma lived in a refuge in Surrey Hills. She absolutely loved it there. She still wishes she lived there. (laughs) It was just a really nice, it was really wholesome for her. They were going to shows and, you know, brunch on Crown Street in Surrey Hills. And she was like, oh, those are the days. (laughs) That's so sweet. She's giving me like Betty White vibes. She's not. She is crude and funny and um, very outspoken. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like that's um, Betty White vibes though as well. She would say some pretty badass shit, but and see the best in a bad situation. But I guess um, just to go back quickly, like you said, your mum did some coaching of the kids, and then the kids were taken. Was there some possibly coaching? We're not sure about the situation. It's our opinion that. just saying that so that we don't get sued for defamation. Um, well, I'm still if... find the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, lady. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess just thinking back on that, like, did your grandmother just give the kids up because of the situation yeah. or were they taken from her by the department? They were taken from her by the department, yeah. And my mum was given custody back of her kids. Like, I can understand them wanting to repatriate the child with the mother, that's understandable, but your your grandmother was a legal guardian. They they must have had yeah. to do some massive substantiations or just taken her at face value, which is just. They they didn't even come and speak to me and my sister. That's so dangerous for somebody they didn't that's even come to the house. For someone that's got the history that your mother does, and that would be documented at that stage, yep. that is a massive failure. You know, most people that work in um, Department of Justice, community services, any of these child welfare, child protection agencies will tell you how much has to be done, mm. sadly, to a child before they're removed. For reunification. Well, for reunification, but even before they're removed from their original home. You know, it's not just a few bruises, you know, that there's an ongoing pattern of behaviour. They will do everything they possibly can to do that. So when a child is thriving and they've made one statement, all of a sudden when the mother comes back into their lives, like the fact that that possibly wasn't probed wasn't and investigated. Flag for them. Yeah. 
with a, a mother that's, you know, had a history of drug problems that has a mental health back, had issues as a background. That's not to say that those things should ever disqualify somebody from reunification with their children. No, but when the kids are thriving, process. yeah, it's it becomes a point of what's the best place for them. Yeah. They haven't lived with her for years, you know. Is the best place for them to be upended again or is the best place to stay with somebody stable and then look at, you know, negotiating a custody arrangement kind of thing? Yeah. Like it's just bananas. That's such a failure of the system. That's really horrible. And the worst part is I know my mum was still using drugs because at the time I was going through my recreational drug phase, which is totally fine at 19, 20 years old. Don't let anybody shame you. Um, and she called me one night and was like, if you don't organize me drugs, like MDMA, I'm going to tell your father. And my dad ended up calling me. So she called him anyway. Cause I said, no, I was like, I'm not giving you drugs. Fuck off. Like you're 40 years old, mom, go away. Yuck. Go away. Why would I give you drugs? Why would I organize it for you? No, I'm, a- I'm allowed to, I'm 19 years old. Yeah. I'm partying. I don't have and five kids. Called, I don't have I don't have six kids at this point. Oh, wow. <laughs> um yeah, and so she she still called my father and like manipulated he called me in a panic though. He was like, Oh, what's this about you doing drugs? Are you okay? Do you need to go to rehab? And like my dad is so like straighty 180, like like so Plus. he he doesn't understand what recreational drug use is um so like he immediately thought like i needed to go to rehab and all this stuff and i was like dad it's just party drugs and he's like mm, no we don't no that's so dangerous and i was like you're yeah, all right dad <laughs> just for reference she just did a shaka <laughs> <laughs> i was like yes yeah, sick one dad <laughs> um but it you know it's just an, an absolutely obscene thing as well in the sense that She's called and manipulated on that level, knowing that she's the reason she wants drugs. Like yeah. that that's so hypocritical to get you in trouble from your father because you're not willing to feed her drug oh, habit. I told him exactly what happened. And he was like, oh, that's not surprising. And because at that point, my dad and I had rebuilt our relationship. Like we, we'd always been really cool. And um, I think it was when I went to university that I kind of saw eye to eye with my dad. Yeah. And we were able to build, you know, like a, a proper daughter, like dad relationship. And, you know, like to this day, I still don't understand people that are like besties with their mum. I'm like, I don't get that. I don't get it. How, how are you best friends with your mum? And that's because my mum's never been maternal. She's never been supportive. Um, the few times that I've seen her since, um, I mind you, I've gone no contact with my mum for 10 years now. So wow. Absolutely no contact whatsoever. Um, my sister even longer. So my sister, maybe 13 years. Wait, how old's my sister? 14 years since my sister last spoke to my mum. Wow. So, and you know, like I still have really cool things happen or really sad things happen. Like my nan recently passing away that I wish I could call my mum and be like, mum, I just like want a friend, Like, but you can't even offer me that because there's always strings attached with my mum, always strings yeah. attached. And you know, my mum doesn't even know who I am. You know, um, I, I saw her when I first started uni. So it would have been the last one one or two visits since I like before I cut her off. And she had all these like random people at her house and 
Like my mom's house was just a place to go to do drugs. And there was always like people even younger than me hanging out at her house doing drugs. And I was like, this is, what the fuck is this? Like, and I think it was those few visits where I went, I can't do this anymore. Like, and I just didn't Mm. even explain it to her. I didn't even say we're not talking anymore. I just cut her off. I blocked her on everything. I blocked her phone number. I don't want anything to do with her. Um, But she was talking to this like random guy that was there about all these things that I apparently like and I'm about. And Catherine loves reading because I love reading. And I was like, my dad loves to read. He owns over 600 books. Oh, Catherine loves music because I love music. Uh, no, my dad bought me my first Blink-182 and the Offspring CDs, like, and Green Day CDs, and they're the bands I listen to. You know what I mean? And it's like, she wouldn't even be able to tell you, like, what favorite, what my favorite color is. Yeah. She wouldn't even be able to tell you that because she never cared enough to ask those questions. She'll just tell people what my favorite things are and what I'm good at. And, you know, she would always say, oh, you were always going to be a writer. And I'm like, I'm not a writer. I've tried. I'm not. Stop telling people that that's what I'm going to be because I'm not. That's not what I want to be. And so there was a little bit of like deep narcissism in the way that she talks about me to people when I know how she's treated me. And it's just like, I don't know if you feel guilty for all the things you do or if you're actually trying to take credit for the person I've become when you had nothing to do with it. Yeah. And a lot of those things she wouldn't even need to ask you. I mean, any parent would be able to pick up on behaviours and things like that. For example, most of my clothes are pink, orange, and red. You know what I mean? My dad literally bought me home a black T-shirt from New Zealand because he knows all I wear is black. Yeah. And it's just like you've got patterns of things that come through when a parent cares and knows you. Um, You know, even the Reclaim Me podcast, I'm wearing like a test merch (laughs) T-shirt jumping out. You know, that's all, it's all orange, pinks and reds and very bold kind of colours and it's stuff that I really enjoy. And, you know, an involved parent would just notice that. They wouldn't have to say her favourite colour is. They would just know Oh, you know what? She's got so many pops of color through her room and in her stuff, but she always oh, wears black. You know, and there. for a parent to to be so disengaged from their child's life to not know that, it's horribly sad. And you know, reflecting on a lot of what you said as well, you know, the damage that it's done to you long term. Um, yeah. and I feel so sorry for those kids, including yourself in that environment. The the walking on eggshells you know, having to witness extreme violence, having to be party to incredible manipulation, you know, and I'm sure that a flow on effect of that is you being able to probably read patterns of behavior and being able to see manipulation a mile away because you've become an expert (laughs) in it. You'd probably be the best hostage negotiator. Like like, people try to gaslight and manipulate me and I'm just like, oh, I learned from the best. Um, I know exactly what you're doing here. Fuck off. Like, yeah, I've seen every this tactic. This literally doesn't work on me. This is baby shit. Like, this is, like, amateur hour. Like, come and hang out with my mom and let's see if you pass. You know, she could be successful in the masterclass of gaslighting. Maybe that's something Probably. that we could... If she was struggling for money, she could teach a lecture on it, maybe. Oh, we could. I would have looked. She just sits and smokes heaps of weed all day, every day. She she did recently go to rehab, I know that. Um, she lost her house. 
after a domestic violence incident that put her in hospital with seven different fractures in her spine. Oh, um, my gosh. The man that did it was her partner at the time, and he's actually been deported for armed burglary. Armed burglary. And these are the people that my mum surrounds herself with. And I'm like, why would I want anything to do with that? Yeah, there's, like, it's so hard to hear that because, like, no matter what, nobody deserves to be hurt like that. No. And I was terrified. It's it's such a common thing for people to not be held accountable for violent crimes against women. And, you know, the the charges, the burglary might be something that they could stick that doesn't need her um, statement against it. But burglary is also a very large offense. So it's good that there's been some kind of ramification from that. But that's horrible. Yeah. It was, and and I think when she got out of hospital, she went into, I I don't know if it was like straight afterwards, but I know she went into rehab and then a halfway house. And now she has her own house and she just sits and smokes weed all day and tells people she's not an addict. And my sister and I had a really interesting conversation because my sister works in disability support and um, her husband works in mental health. So a lot of the things that he does know, he's done, you know, courses on addiction and things like that, that it's not necessarily the substance, but it's the behavior around it. It's that's what makes you an addict. And about, I want to say six years ago, I had a severe painkiller addiction. Like I'm talking like 10 pills a day, codeine. Like if I could get it over the counter, I'm taking it. I don't give a shit. And it took me a while to realize that my shame and my guilt around it is what made me the addict that I was hiding it from people. I hid it from my partner. Like, I don't even know if my grandma knows about it. She's going to find out when she listens to this, but I was struggling, but I was, I was also just starting my mental health journey. I had um, just applied for victims of crime compensation. Like I had gone through like hell and it was just, a really addictive coping mechanism to just feel a little bit out of it all day, every day. Yeah. And those are the things and the behaviors that when you start to hide it, um, you also, I think, hide it from yourself in many ways because you're trying to hide evidence. So you're not letting yourself be accountable either. Yeah. I've literally found a codeine packet in an old handbag and I wow. was like, holy fuck, this is old. And now I won't touch codeine unless I like have to have to. It makes me really violently sick. Yeah, so I'm and it's scary. Glad that that's how I feel about it now. <laughs> yeah, and I mean to show that you're also breaking that cycle from you know what you've been modelled in your life. I'm just pumping in here, and I'm going to wrap up part one with Cat. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we'll be back with part two with Cat next week. Now, as usual, I will always say thank you so much to everybody who has listened, and make sure that you do go rate review and share on any podcast apps or anything that you have, all of the socials, all of the things, please make sure that you go do that. It helps support this podcast so much. And for those of you who are coming to the event on April 13th, 2023 in Coogee in New South Wales, then thank you. And if you're considering coming, then make sure that you head to Eventbrite and grab your tickets or via the show notes of this episode, you'll be able to grab those as well. So thank you all so much, so much listening. I appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.